0: So Mark develops this theme of, you kind of start to see it, you don't necessarily see it um, right away, but there's there's kind of like this exchange thing that happens with Jesus. Um, earlier on, uh, Jesus was out in the wilderness for a while in, in preparing in the gospel, and then he comes in to, starts making his way into the cities, and um, when he's in the cities, then he begins to to have these encounters with different people. And the people that he has encounters with are, are two groups. There's usually um, the religious crowd, um, and then there's like the outcasts, or um, those who are sick or paralyzed, or um, they're having, they have, you know, leprosy, as we were talking about. But um, with those two groups, we see them in the way that society sees them, but, but the way that Jesus sees them is a bit different. Because to Jesus, he actually kind of sees these things in reverse uh, to a certain extent. Um, You know, you and I would consider, um, the maybe consider those who are the religious leaders to be those who are, you know, Jesus' closest friends. When in fact, when you look at the Gospels, those are the guys that are kind of always challenging Jesus, and and they're really those who who would appear to be... um, insiders, you know, you would think like, oh, they're religious, they're Jesus's inner crew. Uh, however, when you look at their relationship, actually, they're actually outsiders to Jesus. And those who are outsiders in society, those who are lepers and paralyzed, those are people who Jesus brings near to him. And those people become, you know, his his inner, his inner crew of, um, in, in that sort of way. And so he makes this great exchange here um, culturally with these two different groups, and we're going to look at the second one this morning. This is the second um, situation where we see Jesus um, with this group of people, and then an outsider comes in and is brought to him. So Mark 2, verses 1 through 12 is what we'll cover this morning. Um, Read with me, starting in verse 1. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, "We never saw anything like this." So we see this this amazing account, which when you're when you're looking at it, um, you know, with whatever kind of set of eyes you come to it, we don't necessarily perceive it at um, in the way that, you know, it's kind of meant to re- be received. If you're a homeowner, you kind of perceive this as like someone's wrecking this guy's house. You know, if you're someone who's in, um, you know, one of these people who's in the religious leader crew or, or someone in this crowd. People are trying to cozy up to Jesus when you're, you know, in this house with already no room and they're trying to make their way in and and kind of butt you out of, of your spot. And, and you kind of come at it with your own eyes, but, but it's interesting to see the situation through the eyes of Jesus. And so that's what we're going to kind of look at this morning. So the the situation is really interesting. It's a, it's a, it's a fun narrative to follow because there's kind of a lot of um, little awkward moments in it. Um, you know that they almost kind of produce like a little bit of comedy and and when I'm when I'm looking at them I'm like reading it and laughing kind of about uh, the situation that is taking place so what happens here is Jesus spends some time uh healing this leper and then he comes into to uh you know a bit of time passes we don't know exactly how much time but the original language indicates it's been a little bit of time you know it's not like one day it's been you know maybe a week or two and so Jesus his his fame has been growing throughout Capernaum. And he he's in Capernaum and he's in this place it says it's his house, which most likely um, you know, Peter's house, um that was kind of there where they all gathered. And the houses there they weren't very they weren't very big. It wasn't like, you know, the way that we think about it, like you know, when you buy a house, you're thinking about your square footage, and then like the acreage on which like your house sits, and you get so much. Like their houses were, you know, they, it, Capernaum was a really, really small city, but the houses were like super close together. And in fact, um, in, in that culture, they actually had these things called like uh, roof walks, where like the the houses could be, um, and it wasn't on every house, but like there was like almost like a like a um, a sidewalk on the roof of the house that connected like all the houses so you could kind of go through it's like you know it's like the Capernaum sky uh, the Capernaum High Line Park or whatever you know it's like above and it connects the whole um, the whole city together there I don't know if it was on every house here but there was a little bit of um, that at that time and so they're, they're in this property it's not huge they're gathered in there everyone's packed in and Jesus is here he's preaching the word um, it, we saw in verses fourteen and fifteen of chapter one that Jesus's primary goal was to preach the gospel of God and proclaim that kingdom of God, and so here he is being faithful to that. He's proclaiming um, for the in the previous week that we looked at uh, the passage there. Jesus was healing. He he heals a he has this, this crazy day of healing in the Sabbath, where you know he starts off the morning he's preaching the word. Then he encounters like this guy who has a demon who's calling him out. He heals that guy, and then it's the Sabbath. So then he goes to kind of into uh, Peter's house, which is across the way from the synagogue. He's in there. Peter Peter's mother-in-law sick, and so like all the disciples bring him up there, and he's healing. He heals Peter's mother-in-law, and then the sun sets, so the Sabbath is over for the Jews. So the whole town lines up, and Jesus heals like everybody who's sick in the town is basically kind of what happens there. And then early the next morning, the passage indicates that Jesus like goes out on his own to pray, and everyone's looking for him. And you know, no doubt his fame has grown. He's all uh, the disciples are extremely excited, but yet Jesus is gone he he's he's taken off he's praying early in the morning and they come to look for him and they're like jesus where are you at everyone's looking for you and and what he what he says you know he doesn't say like oh yeah let's go take you know take advantage of my fame or let's go take advantage of of this this healing you know sort of ministry that i have he is faithful to obey what the father has told him to do in proclaiming the gospel and so he says let's go to the next town that i might proclaim the gospel and i might preach the gospel so he does that. He he kind of abandons this, uh, you know, more or less healing ministry that people would want to associate him with. But Jesus, you know, he can't be understood as a healer. He he wants to be understood within his own context that he sets. And so here he is in this house being faithful to proclaim the gospel. And, and in Jesus' ministry, the word is always tied very um the word of God and and Scripture, and, and um, th- those things are are very tied to the essence of His ministry, because if you if you look at it even throughout the entire history of the Bible, the Bible tells us in Genesis that the world was created by the mouth of God, the Word, and then we follow that, we track that through. If you look at you know the book of John, the, the book of John talks about Jesus being the Word of God. In the flesh, made manifest, dwelling among us, and so this ministry of the word has kind of continued on, and Jesus is faithful here to that. And then, if you look even further, um, you know we know that the word is integral in the in the producing of faith. Romans ten seventeen tells us that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And so, hearing the word of God produces faith within us, and, and it's a it's only appropriate that Jesus is preaching here the word because we're about to see faith demonstrated. The word is going forth, and, you know, Jesus has been faithful to that, and now we see some of this faith being brought into action. So these guys come, there's a, there's a paralytic, somebody who's paralyzed, he's on a bed, and he's being brought by four men. We don't know who they are, we don't know, you know, if they're his friends, they're his family members, we have zero information about that, but we do know that they're looking to bring this man to Jesus. You know, the house was packed it, that that they were bringing this man to. And no doubt they had heard in, in this past couple weeks of the great things that Jesus has done. No doubt they've heard of Jesus' uh, miraculous works of his healing uh, power, his healing authority that he has demonstrated again and again. And so we don't know if this is like someone that these guys know or whether they're just pumped on Jesus, they, they've heard about him, they've seen him, and they're like, oh, there's a sick guy, let's just grab him. Jesus can fix him. We don't really know what the situation is. However, we do know that these guys, you know, understand the, the power that Jesus has here, the authority. And so, this house is packed, there's no way into it, and there's, a, there's like a massive crowd around him. The houses were small, so there's people in there, and the way that the, the synagogue was set up, and the way that... Um, This isn't a synagogue, but the way that, like, the synagogues were set up is, like, you know, the the most religious leaders got to sit first, and the the hierarchy, you got to be, like, the closer to the teacher. And so, no doubt, it's kind of like Jesus, and then, like, it kind of goes out in waves of, like, the most important, you know, within that that hierarchy of that society. And so, these guys come in, and they kind of discover, like, there's no room for four guys. It's already really awkward carrying this other guy on a stretcher. And we're gonna we're gonna carry this guy in, but they they get there. There's no room. There's a barrier between them and Jesus. They they want to get in. They can't get in. And and so what happens here? Um, this is kind of the second place where we see this new uh, theme that is being introduced into Mark. Uh, he's introduced this theme, uh, um, which like uh, commentators call it like the boundary co- crossing motif. So, like, this is our second one that's kind of really fun. There's the, the messianic secret motif and then the boundary crossing motif. I'm really into these motifs. Um, I think I just like to say the word. Uh, but within this boundary crossing motif, we kind of saw a little bit of a glimpse of it last week. And it's something that we'll begin to see again and again throughout the gospel, all the way up to, uh, you know, chapter eight and interspersed throughout. But what it is, is it, it kind of has to deal with that idea that we were talking about earlier. About insiders and outsiders those who who culturally were were told to be on the outside, they crossed through the for instance the the one that we saw last week was the leper who who he was um, lawfully supposed to be outside of the camp outside of of the city where the where the people were dwelling he was supposed to live alone and it was uh he would break the law if he was to come in and and be among them. And but yet we see that he comes in, he throws himself at Jesus' feet, you know, wanting to be healed. And and his cry to, you know, his his cry to Jesus is, If you if you will, I can be clean. You know, and Jesus' response, of course, back to him is, I will be clean. And, um, but this man, he he crosses every social sociological boundary, he crosses every uh cultural boundary, every religious boundary that was set up. To get to Jesus, and this is kind of the second portion where we see this this morning it 's these guys they bring this guy in a stretcher, and there 's no way in and This is the second kind of time where they kind of break a little bit of the the rules here to um, to get to jesus so he there's this this these people come and there 's a boundary between them and Jesus, but they don 't let it stop them they, they They kind of formulate a plan and um what happens is these guys say, okay, we can't we can't make it through the front door, we can't make it through the side door, we can't even get like to see the doors, but yet they think rooftop entry, like we're going to Mission Impossible this, you know, just straight up rip open the roof and drop down and, you know, be right there, which seems daring, but within that culture, you know, like you don't want your house being ripped up. So what happens is the way that these houses were formed is uh, that they were, they were structures, and they, they usually had a, a staircase, um, like a, a stone staircase or a ladder outside, that would allow the people to go to the roof of their house in the cool of the day. Um, they would just kind of sit up there and relax. It's kind of like their patio of sorts. Just go up there, have a, you know a, a little dinner or um, you know just hang out late night on the roof. And just let the breeze come through, and really a, a place for them to relax and um, and so there was access to these rooftops and But the way that these rooftops were set up, it was kind of like this it was a, it was a, it was a flat rooftop, and what happened was there were there were major uh like beams or major logs that would that would rest across the walls of the house. the exterior walls would would hold these two, um, or, or these several beams that went across, and then they would use smaller uh, sticks or poles to kind of crosshatch that across the other way. And then after that, they would lay on, um, you know, like thatch and, and um, reeds and things like that to further, um, you know, make a, make a little bit of a mat there. And then they would apply clay and mud and things like that, and other gospels tell us that um, that there was also clay tiles that were laid on on top of that, so you know it was it was quite a bit of work here it wasn't you know it wasn't like they had a chainsaw, and they were in a modern house and were just like let's do this right through the top so these guys they they get up the brilliant idea they're going to go to the roof, so they get up to the roof they're cover you know they start to to rip back this. Material. You know, they have to kind of dig through the clay, the mud. They have to dig through this, uh, you know, they have to dig through the the reeds and the thatch. And, and meanwhile, like, I'm just wondering, what is, like, that scene like? Like, Jesus is sitting there teaching, and all of a sudden, like, stuff's falling. And he's like, okay, like, I'm going to keep teaching. <laughs> more is falling, you know, more and more. And then, like, the first, like, beam of sunlight kind of, like, peeks through, you know, and it's like, what is going on? Like the homeowner's like freaking out, but Jesus isn't freaking out, you know, and they're like they want to just rage and go get whoever's doing that and Jesus continues to teach kind of you know it it must have just been like a wild scene to to be there in that, and so this is this is kind of what happens here, so the the house. You know, And ultimately, these men rip back the ceiling. Jesus is let down, or not Jesus, the paralytic is let down uh, in front of Jesus, and Jesus has this encounter with him. So l- let's look at that um, in verse 2. Here's what happens. We get to see kind of the 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 action here, the faith of these men. Here's what happens. Verse 2, And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was there preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. So Jesus, these guys make it through. He gets dropped down, and we get to kind of see the the faith of these men on display here. They know of Jesus, they know of what He's done, and we can kind of gather from their actions that they're motivated by that knowledge of of the great works of Jesus. But within this, you know, this this helps us to kind of to glean from their actions how we are to live in faith individually. So there's a couple things to note here. The first thing is. Is that there's a there's a clear difference between the crowd and these guys, these disciples, um, you know, these followers of Jesus. They've evidently seen Jesus, you know, and they've evidently been a part of the crowd at one point, but yet they're motivated to action. Being a part of the crowd that surrounds Jesus, it's not always the same as being the a disciple of Jesus. Because many times you see the crowd around Jesus and like interspersed within the crowd, you know, most of the time are people who are listening to kind of trap him or people who are listening because they have preformed opinions. But when we see faith most authentically revealed within scripture, it's with an individual interaction with Jesus you know those who are his disciples those who are his followers we we see these individual vignettes of Jesus interacting here and so what happens is the crowd stands around to observe you know and and at one point of course that's kind of how we all are with Jesus we're standing around and we're observing you know we're a part of that crowd at some point we're hearing the things that are being said about Jesus we're we're seeing in the pages of scripture you know the things that Jesus preached and proclaimed but there's a clear difference that those who are disciples of Jesus, those who are who put their faith in Jesus, they commit themselves to action. And that's what happened with these guys here. They didn't just stand around and were part of the crowd. They had maybe done that at some point and seen some great things happen. But yet, in this instance, they're motivated to do something. Faith is not just blind, you know, blind choices and and believing against all odds these guys the the faith that they demonstrate here it's not just like oh there's a guy and like there's a lot of people let's maybe just bring some guy to him they have their their faith is built upon an evidence of previous work our faith is is the same way we don't have faith just merely because you know oftentimes um you know you'll you'll just kind of hear and like you know random quotes on the internet and greeting cards and like weird stuff like that where you know people talk about just faith being like well you just got to have faith and it's not really like you know you got to do it despite not knowing and that's an element of faith but faith is really built upon uh, upon evidence it's built upon a solid understanding and our faith is built upon an understanding of God's faithfulness throughout history of God's track record and that's really where where that is built upon. It's not um, these men or, or us just making these blind choices or, or making these blind decisions to do things. There's evidence that backs these things up. Faith, it, it must be something here that is active. And that's what these guys really, they portray here. It, it's first and foremost not knowledge about Jesus because there's there's a lot of people that know about Jesus or could tell a story about Jesus that doesn't mean that they have that faith. But faith is really active trust in Jesus as the fulfillment that he is able to to be to fulfill and be sufficient for your deepest, your most heartfelt needs. It's it's not a matter of just Jesus Um, you know, coming to Jesus to get what you want, but understanding that Jesus is really what we're after. That faith, the the way that we demonstrate faith, is done through an active trust in who he is. So practically what that looks like is, if you think about your deepest, most heartfelt need, what you're doing... ultimately, when you're placing your faith in Christ, is you're saying that Jesus is more than sufficient to meet that. Jesus himself is more than sufficient to, uh, to take care of me. You know, I was discussing this a little bit with my wife, and we were kind of just discussing some of the things, and, um, you know, she's asking me for examples and things like that, and, and really, you know, for me, one of the things that, as a, as a, um, you know, as a husband, as a father, it's, it's being a breadwinner, you know, being a, being a provider for my family. And so, you know, when, when things are not looking good financially, <clears throat> it's having an active trust and an active, um, you know, faith in Christ that he is going to accomplish and take care of me despite what may happen now? Of course, that doesn't mean that like I can just like totally relax because I have a responsibility as a husband that the Bible lays out to be to work hard and to do a good job and to to do whatever it takes to provide for my family. But to know that He ultimately is the provider, that He ultimately you know will take care of me, and really, what it is for it's a it's a spiritual thing, uh, in a place of understanding that he has been faithful to provide thus far, and he will continue to do that. Now, of course, you know, like I was saying, uh, there is individual responsibility within there. Like, I actually have to go and work. I have to, you know, clock in and clock out, and, you know, and things like that. But there are times when we fall into hard times, and, and things don't look good. You know, a couple years ago, I lost my job, and it was, you know, what happened was we sat down. Well, first I sat down, and I prayed before I went home because I didn't know how to talk to my wife about it. Um, and then after that, and then we sat down and we prayed. And we just, you know, the Lord just gave us, uh, you know, scripture in Psalm 37 and just totally ministered to us. And, and it took us through, you know, a year and a half, every instance where where we would doubt and we would wonder. And, you know, that first month where rent was coming up, but I didn't have a job. I didn't have great savings. You know, and then the second month, and then the third month, and the Lord again provided, and again provided, and again provided. The first month, it was really freaky. The second month, it was like, that was a fluke. The third month, it was like, okay, like, you know, then I was like at the point where I was like, all right, like, I trust you. Like, you've done this already two times. You do it a third time. You're really good on the third time. That's what happened, on, you know, like, and so basically what happened was, you know, because I saw evidence of his faithfulness, I was able to to actively live in faith um, in that situation. So these things, um, these boundaries that these guys experience, and the boundaries that we experience, those things can't stand in the way of us having an active faith. The having having an active faith in Christ um, in different situations, it doesn't always like make sense where you know the lord's calling you to do something to calling you to live in faith um you know in in different situations it doesn't always make sense you know it doesn't always make sense for someone let's say who is who has a very uh, high profile job or a well paying job you know and the lord's calling them to maybe serve on uh on a church staff it doesn't make sense for them to to you know maybe back away from their job and and quit that and join a church staff that doesn 't really pay well, but yet out of faith and the lord the Lord calling them to do that and them being obedient to do that, you know that is something that requires this active trust in God, and so for us, you know it didn 't make you know for me personally in in moving to Berkeley and being here um, in the city it didn 't make sense because I was originally from Orange County, which is like the opposite of Berkeley. It's like it couldn't get more like opposite of Berkeley. So, you know, I kind of almost felt a little bit like Paul and, uh, you know, where Paul's like the most qualified to go to the Jews, but he ends up with the Gentiles. And Peter's like, you know, the blue-collar worker and he ends up like with the Jews. It, you know, I it almost kind of felt backwards to me, but yet here we are having services, faithfully showing up, because this is what God has called us to do. He didn't call us to have, you know to have necessarily uh, a very... He didn't tell us that we were going to be wildly successful with numbers out the door. He didn't tell us that, you know, it was going to be standing room only. He didn't tell us, you know, really much about it, but just really said, go. And so here we are in obedience to that. And so these guys here, they demonstrate great faith in, re- in overcoming any boundaries that are coming that that allow them um, to get to Jesus. Like nothing stands in the way. You know they they discount the fact that they're ruining someone's house. They discount um, you know their reputations about you know they're going to be known in the community as the guys who ripped up the guy's roof, interrupting Jesus's teaching. You know. It, it wasn't looking good for them, but yet they didn't let anything keep them from getting to Jesus. And so what happens here is like these guys finally break through, and Jesus isn't really offended by these guys who are removing the roof. He just kind of, he, he's actually encouraged because what the scripture says here, it, it says in verse 5, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, sons, your sins are forgiven. So like Jesus isn't upset. They, they come down, and, they, and what it indicates is that Jesus saw. Their active trust in in their in their actions and the things that they've done. Jesus saw that, and then he has this great interaction with um with this paralytic, which is you know kind of is the getting almost to the the climax of the story here because it starts with this with this paralytic, but then it quickly turns to the religious folks. Um, so here's what happens: Jesus gets or the, the paralytic gets let down, and. Jesus has this interaction with him. He he says as soon as the paralytic gets down, he says, "Son, your sins are forgiven." You know, if you're the guys holding the rope or you're the paralytic, you're just like, "No! That's not what I wanted. Like I cannot walk." You missed it, you know? Like I got dragged up a roof. It's probably not fun, you know, to be like the guy who you feel like you're going to fall off stuff. You're being brought up a ladder backwards and, you know, all of a sudden they're like, we're going to make a hole and drop you through it. And you're like, these ropes aren't, like, safety tested and rated here. Like, you know, you probably got, like, some, like, twigs and stuff from, like, the the roof here. It's not like they were carrying ropes. Like, we're going to go rappelling and drop this guy through the roof. They probably didn't come, like, prepared with, like, rope here. And so, like, they get dropped down and Jesus is like, your sins are forgiven. I mean, like, it would be, like, the biggest letdown ever. You know, because you just be like, that's not what I wanted. Like, I have this problem. It's clear. You must be blind. Why did we come here? You know, and these guys, it's not like they let him down on the people sitting in front of Jesus. They're probably, like, hovering him above because there's no room. If there was room, people would have, you know, scooted up and and they could have put him down. So the guys are, like, still holding him. Like, they're probably not happy about this. They're probably not happy about Jesus' first words to this man here, do you think, like, I I was just thinking, it was, like, there probably was, like, a a flash within, like, a five to ten second period of, like, surprise, you know, like, relief that they're there, anger, as soon as he says this, confusion, like, this is not, like, you know, I can understand, like, He missed it, you know, just being that man and understanding that. And that's not what, like, necessarily, like, this man wanted to hear. He clearly has a a physical problem. And so, you know, it kind of causes us to wonder, like, why did Jesus not, like, heal this man? Why did he say that? Well, what happened was when Jesus looks at this man, he goes, he looks deeper into this man than this man is looking at himself. And this is what happens with you and I. We only look at, like, the surface issue. Like, we don't necessarily have a problem right now. You know, like, I have kind of this this little thing that maybe if I could fix that, I would be okay. But Jesus looks deeper into the heart of this man, and he looks at this man's greatest need. He doesn't fix the man's most visibly seen need. He doesn't fix the man's need that will most please him. But Jesus goes to the man's greatest need. He could have he could have easily healed this man. I mean, there's no doubt you see it you know on record through the gospels. He could have easily healed this man, but he doesn't. What what he does is he goes to this man's greatest need, and he knew that if he only healed this man's you know paralysis, he would have been pumped. He would have just been so pumped, got up, doing backflips, running around, excited. But after two, three, four, five months go by. He's just another guy walking around town, you know, and that's not so exciting to him. He's just another, another face in the crowd, you know, another, just another regular guy walking around. Jesus' attention to this man's greatest need here, his, his need of forgiveness of sin is, is greater. It's more loving and more compassionate than his attention to this man's physical need. Because what happens here it, it, with you and I is sometimes we have something that we want, and there's you know maybe something that that um, that we're you know praying for, or maybe something that we kind of have these requests from the Lord, like Lord, if you would only do this, then I will follow you. Or Lord, if if you're real, show me this, and then I will follow you. But Jesus doesn't allow us to come to him in that way because what happens is if, if, if we're allowed to create our own terms there, if we're allowed to set our own, you know, demands there, we're missing the point because what happens here, if this, if Jesus had healed this man, if he had given him just perfect healing without dealing with this man's greatest need, in time, that need, you know, that, that initial need is fixed. But the man is still empty and broken. The man still has problems and this is exactly what happens with like celebrities. you know It's like they strike it rich, they get super famous, and they go from like having like a like a little fun group of fans to having like tons of fans, and then they can't go anywhere and they can't actually have like really a personal relationship with anybody and then like sooner or later, you found out that like they're super miserable they're having, you know, they're they're having, you know, just money problems. They're having all these crazy things because those things haven't fulfilled that person. They have a problem that exists still. Now, in the same way here, Jesus knows that this man's greatest need is not physical, it's not mental, it's not social, but it's a spiritual need that exists. And what Jesus does by, by addressing this man, man's sins instead of addressing his healing is he's telling the man very specifically, you haven't asked, you know, enough. You know, you've only asked to, for a little bit, but I want to do so much more for you. I want to forgive you of your sins, not just make you feel a little bit better, and yet you still have that problem. So the main, the main instance here that Jesus deals with is this man's sin. And that's the main problem that we have in our life. You know, the main problem that we're experiencing in our life is not what has happened to us because we kind of hold on to these things like experiences or ways that we've been treated. And those are the things that like, we want vengeance for or we want revenge for or we want justice for. But Jesus goes deeper than that and he wants to deal with us as a person We can't be marked by our identity as someone who was held on to those things. Genesis tells us um, that when Adam disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden, what he did there was he created an identity that was separate from God. And, And that's really, he was seeking independence from God in creating his own way In disobedience. He created his own identity. And that, and that's what happens with us here, and and that's why this is so dangerous in coming in, in, trying to kind of get what we want out of Jesus, because in creating your own identity, out of uh, out of something other than Jesus, and building your life upon something other than Jesus, is dangerous because one day those things will fail you. You know, right now you might be a spouse, or you might be a son or a daughter. You know. Right now, you might have a great career, but one day, you'll be fired. Then you won't have a career, and then you have nothing, and that has failed you. One day, your spouse will die, and you're no longer a husband or a wife. If you've built your life upon those things, when that day arrives, you have nothing. And so, that's why it's so important to build our life upon Jesus, because when we fail, when we mess up, it's different than when we mess up with each other. You know, when we mess up with each other, we kind of have to go through this process of, of dealing with it and, you know, trying to forgive another person. But when we mess up, Jesus forgives us right away. He doesn't ever fail us in that area. He never fails us um, in, in any area. When we mess up, Jesus will forgive us. When we fail, Jesus will forgive us. When, there's no option for Jesus to fail. And so when you build your life upon Christ, it's upon solid ground. It's upon something that is faithful and has been proven again and again and again. The other thing that I like about building your life upon Jesus is he already knows all of our shortcomings, so there's no disappointing him. There's not really a point where he's going to find out about something, you know, in your past, or he's not going to find out about something that, you know, that you did that not everybody knows about. Jesus already died for those things, and so there's no disappointing Jesus. And so what happens here is he forgives this man's sins, but look at look at Verse 6. He says, um, right here in this situation. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, "Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone?" So, on, on, on hearing like this forgiveness of sins um, statement from Jesus, what happens is like we get kind of get like a little zoom in to the religious leaders there, and it, it's like this. Little, little sidebar, because they don't actually say it out loud. They're thinking this in their hearts. Um, and, you know, they're, they're upset about two things here. They say he's blaspheming, and only God can forgive sins. And they're, they're half right, because, he, you know, only God can forgive sins. That's true. But Jesus isn't blaspheming because Jesus is God. Only God can forgive sins is the claim that they make. But it's right. If you look at Exodus 34, 6 and 7, that says this, "...the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and, by no, um, and the children's children in the third to the fourth generation." Psalm 103 remarks on the same thing. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit. And then lastly in Isaiah 43:25 he says, God says, I I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. And so the Pharisees here uh, and the scribes—they're—they're they're correct in making this claim that only God can forgive sins. But within their their um, within Scripture, like in, in the Old Testament, and within their rabbinic traditions, there's not a place where forgiveness of sins is attributed to the uh, Messiah. And so this is kind of like a new thing for them. It, forgiveness of sin remains the exclusive right of god. And so even within um like their their documents the the rabbinic tradition and um and the things that have been passed down within their culture the the idea of messiah has been it's been very specific about a lot of things about one who would would heal the sick, who would cast out demons, who would come with authority and power but even there's not really a place where it says that he is going to forgive sins so they don't really have um a great reference for this but they're angry rightfully because only god can forgive sin but this is the exact claim that jesus is making it's a claim to deity it's a claim that he is god and the reason that jesus can forgive sin is because jesus is god and this is this is what he what he sets out To to accomplish here and he kind of does like a one two he validates like I'm God and I'm going to also heal as like kind of like a a validation of that Um, and there's a lot of ways in in, you know in your life and my life that like we sin there's laws that we disobey commandments that we break things that we you know sins that we commit you know by whether they're things we do or whether they're things we don't do but ultimately, you know, throughout that process of, of of living life, when we sin and we sin against another, ultimately, like, we sin against God because we're disobeying, ultimately, God's law, and all sin is against God. And so that is why Jesus is able to forgive this man. It's not like Jesus is, like, a third party here, and he's just pronouncing the forgiveness of this man's sins. He's like another guy. You know, say, for instance, we were standing here, and, you know, my kids were hanging out here, and one of them punched the other one. And I came over, and I said, oh, it's okay, I forgive you. It wouldn't really be an effective apology, because I'm a third party. I wasn't the one who was offended in that action. But because all sin is the breaking of God's law, God, in in the sins that we commit, he is always the most offended party in that. So, although we sin against one another, ultimately we're sinning against God. David, um, he King David, he does this. He he makes this clear. Excuse me, when he sinned, um, when he uh, when he um, took Bathsheba from you know he had adultery there with Bathsheba and took. Uh, her from um, her husband, who was one of his soldiers out in the field. David, you know, he sinned there. He sinned against his family. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against uh, her husband Uriah. He sinned against the army. He sinned against like the whole nation, who's who he's the leader of. And like all of those people will feel the effects, the consequences of his sin. But look at his response in. When he's, you know, in Psalm 51, and it's interesting because although he's sinned against all of those people and they'll feel the consequences of his sin, in Psalm 51, his confession is this in verse three and four, for I know my transgressions, and this is regarding this specific incident. I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight his confession is that he's only sinned against God because God is the, the most offended party when we sin because we have broken his law. Of course there will be consequences and, and and as a result of this action, but his sin is against God. So when Jesus says, "Son, your sins are forgiven," he's indicating that this man's sin, this paralytic his sins were ultimately against him. He is forgiving someone so personally as, as he is God. And then lastly, um, we wrap up the passage here um, in verse 8. It starts to pick up. He says, And immediately uh, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves... So there's like an amazing incident here where Jesus knows like exactly what's in the heart of the scribes. They don't actually say it, but they know what Jesus knows what's happening in their hearts, you know, and he answers their question without them actually asking it, which would be a little bit freaky and you would think like maybe that kind of validates like he knows what's going on. He gives me an answer to a question that I didn't verbally ask. Like It might kind of tip you off a little bit. Something else is going on here but he answers them and poses this question back to them he says which is easier to say to the paralytic your sins are forgiven or to say rise take up your bed and walk so like what is easier to say i mean in short it would be like this you would think it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because it doesn't require any visual proof You know, i could you know at that moment it's like no one really knows what happened it's not it's not a visual thing that is validated by this man like, oh, he looks different all of a sudden. There's not a, there's not a visual, you know, confirmation that, that would happen at that moment. However, to heal, that would require a demonstration, you know, and Jesus would be outed pretty immediately. If he said, like, rise, take up your bed and walk, and the guy was just kind of like floundering there, and he didn't, then it would be, you know, pretty, it would be found out that, you know, he doesn't have that authority. But at the same time, in declaring this man's sins forgiven, what he's doing is he's charting his course to the cross. He, he's saying, Son, your sins are forgiven. It's an easier thing for people to perceive in the room. However, what he's done there is he has committed himself, therefore, again to his purpose of coming to die for the sins of the world. So both are kind of equally hard, you know, for him to say. Probably it's harder to say your sins are forgiven if you look at it from that perspective. But there there was no visual proof here that these guys could, you know, to they could use, you know, against him in that. But in verse 10, he says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and walk. So what he's saying is, he this is going to validate my credentials here. I'm going to do both. I've said... I forgive him. You may know that I have authority and power to forgive sins. Rise, take up your bed, and walk. So he does both. He takes them out. Um, he takes out these these claims and accusations with one little swoop here. And so he, he implies that he has this authority. Not only does he have um, the authority to do so, but he has the ability to do it right there on the spot. And then this is kind of like the last thing that that he indicates there. He says that you would know that you would know that I have the power and authority. He wants us to experience like his his authority firsthand. He wants us to to not just understand, you know, in in a very theoretical scholarly way where you read it from a book. His, the word there that that is used in the original language, it's a it's an experiential word where it's um it's meant to say, like, I've seen it. I was there. I was an eyewitness. I've, I've tasted, I've handled, I've touched, you know, something of that nature where you would say, I, I know. I have evidence. I have experience with that. He says that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, or to know, in short, that He is truly God. He forgives. He's proving His authority to forgive and that He is God but the the thing here is what he's doing is so compassionate because he's not just responding in like this like backhanded way to these religious leaders what he's doing with them is is incredibly gracious and compassionate because although this paralytic has come with a very physical need although he has come and Jesus has addressed this man's greatest need first but then also heals this man Jesus is again by communicating that who he is he's putting him he's putting the the religious leaders on a level playing field with them what he's he's saying is he's testifying of himself i want you to know who i am i want you to experience that i am god i want you personally those who are self-righteous those who feel like they can live independent of me because that's exactly what they've done they've built their own identity apart from jesus I want you to know who I am and see that, you know, testify of that. It's incredibly gracious because Jesus is, is is pointing out here to them that these religious leaders, those who have self-justified, they're in as much need of his forgiveness of sin as this paralytic. They're not on a different level. They're not above this. They don't need it at a, at a you know, different strength he too is, has died for their sins. And he, he's, he's gently bringing this to their attention so that they may understand who he is and place their faith actively in him as well. And then the, it ends like this. In verse 12 he says, And he rose immediately. This man was obedient. He picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. So there's just a general um, testimony of what, what God has done. As a result of the work of God here in this passage, th- this man is healed both internally with his spiritual problems. His sins are forgiven. He has physically been healed. He, Jesus has validated in his claims that he is God and he has authority to heal um, sickness, disease, that he has authority to heal that which, you know, man cannot. I mean, you know, it's it's amazing because even today, you know, it's not like anybody in the medical field is going around healing paralytics or giving drugs to fix paralytics. Even today, the only person that can heal paralytics is Jesus. You know, there's different things where where people will, you know, they can... They can do, you know, some surgeries to kind of like bring back limited motion, but it's not like you're brand new. It's not like someone, you know, all of a sudden you feel a little bit and over time you kind of get it back. You know, there, there's, there's things that exist like that, but Jesus touches this man and then he has strength to pick up a bed that four guys were carrying him on and walk out. You know, he's probably got to carry it home. As a result of this, they're amazed, they glorify God, but their claim is like, we've never seen anything like this because only Jesus brings this type of work. Of course they haven't seen anything like this. Only Jesus would bring this type of love and compassion that he would deal with the man's not most immediate need or, or the most visual need, but he deals with the man's greatest need. And, and, and that's really where we're at today. You know, I'm thankful that, that Jesus has dealt with our greatest need. He didn't mess around and come to, you know, so we could give out sandwiches to each other. He's come to save us from death. And as a result of that, we demonstrate his love. We go out and we serve those who are in need. We want to, to love as Jesus loved but his primary need was not, his primary goal was not healing these guys as we saw in the previous week. His primary goal was to let people know that they could be saved from death. And so what, what we're going to do now is we're going um, to do a couple more songs. We have um, communion available on the side and um, you can take that at, uh, you know, whatever time you like. And really, just reflect on um, where where we're at in this claim of of who Jesus is, where we stand with Him, or you know in in the broad scope of things, where you're at. Are you still a part of the crowd? Where you're kind of just observing? And maybe if you're a part of the crowd, it's it's probably you know, and you've seen enough. Maybe it's time to move from. From being a part of the crowd to putting, you know, to, to being a disciple and putting that faith into action, and and putting that act of trust in Jesus and who He is, and it's a it's really an opportunity to respond um, to His grace, just as He has demonstrated His love towards this man here in dealing with his greatest need. You know, we know from Scripture that that is exactly what He has done on the cross. He's dealt with our greatest need at the cross so that we might have um, a relationship with God. So let's pray. Lord, we're thankful.